This is Jeffrey Lickman with Beyond the Legal Limit, and this is my second podcast episode. I hope you enjoyed the first. Last week was primarily just a a background of who I am and why I'm doing these podcast episodes. This week will be a little more streamlined. I'm going to try to narrow it down to a number of topics instead of sort of a scattershot approach now that you know who I am and, as I said, why I'm here. We're going to divide this show up into two different parts. One is we're going to talk a little bit about current events, and the other we're going to talk about something behind the scenes that occurred during a, a famous trial I had, United States versus John A. Gotti, also known as John Gotti Jr. And there was some stuff there that really the, the case was fascinating to me from the beginning, really how I got involved through the end. And I'm going to talk about in a bit how I got involved. And it's, it's, it's really unusual, but we'll get into that in a little bit. The first thing I want to talk about is what's going on in the news today. And the most obvious thing that we really can't seem to get away from is just the never-ending talk about COVID and all of the restrictions and how we're going to handle it and the people that are dying and these dire predictions. And it's, to me, it's, I've had enough. And I, I find that, you know, the handling of the latest variant, this Omicron, is just unbearable. And people forget, you know, it's now December of 2021. They forget how we felt in March of 2020 and how we were told all these, you know, predictions and that we needed to flatten the curve. We just needed 14 days of a lockdown and now we're coming on two years and we seem to be running in place to me, at least. We were told when uh, Biden was running for president against Trump that, and this is what he said, I'm taking an actual quote, anyone who was responsible for that many deaths referring to Trump, should not remain as president of the United States of America. At the time that Biden said that, and it was a little less than a year ago, the United States had recorded 220,000 COVID deaths. Biden was inaugurated in, what, the third week of January of this year, and uh, we've had 350,000 more deaths just on his watch from COVID. So Biden has done significantly worse than Trump when you consider Not just the numbers of deaths, but the fact that Biden had the benefit of vaccines. He had the benefit of of more experienced treating of COVID by medical professionals. And uh, there were obviously so many more treatment choices. I mean, people started getting vaccinated soon after Biden was inaugurated. And I was uh, vaccinated in March of this year, and I certainly wasn't the first person. Nevertheless, we've had so many more deaths. And Biden promised to, quote, shut down the virus, not the country. And he accused Trump of having no plan. If the president, and this is his quote, if the president had done his job, had done his job from the beginning, all the people would still be alive. That's what Biden said last fall. All the people, not some of the people, basically accusing Trump of killing 220,000 people. Think about that. I mean, this guy's on the par with like Hitler. That's what uh, Biden accused them as. And it's, it's such a disgusting lie to say such a thing. And, you know, I remember the, the media following up with it, saying that Trump had blood on his hands. Well, if Trump has blood on his hands, what does Biden have? He killed 350,000 people. Is that what they're saying as well? Plus he had the vaccine and he still killed that many people. Where is his plan? 
The Delta variant's been going on, you know, for months now. Biden didn't even meet his initial benchmark of getting 70% of all adults in America with one vaccination by July 4th. And he still has no plan for the Delta variant. And now he's got this Omicron. The fact is, is that Biden was willing to say anything to get elected. No lie was too big for him. And this isn't exactly a novel concept for somebody that's running for president. I mean, let's, let's be honest here. This is what they do. But he lied about Americans living and dying. And, you know, to me, that's a lot different than, you know, lying about the economy or promising to do this or that. So despite all of the plans that, you know, we were promised to fight COVID by Biden, there are more monthly deaths from COVID now than there were a year ago when Trump was in office. So, you know, it's, it's troubling to me. And, you know, we hear that Biden is pushing the vaccine and telling the country that the people who aren't vaccinated are the problem here. They're the ones that are the problem. And he's suggesting that it's Republicans and he's suggesting that it's the red states. But the truth is the group in America that's really not getting vaccinated is black America. He doesn't want to say that because if he says that, he's going to offend his base, his party, the idiots that voted for him. So he's not going to talk about the fact that blacks are just refusing to get vaccinated. And look, I can understand if you're a black man in America with the history of the way we've treated blacks, let's be honest, it's certainly understandable for them not to trust the government. You know, that's not talked about either, but it doesn't change the fact that he's specifically ignoring the black community for not getting vaccinated. He's just talking about Republicans because that's what this has become, this entire virus and how we handle it has become so politicized, which is, of course, repulsive. I mean, this is living and dying. But you hear about entire football teams that are coming down with COVID. And the truth is that the vaccinated are getting it. The vaccinated are spreading it. These teams are nearly 100% vaccinated. They're young athletes that are in the best shape of any Americans. And they're all getting it. And we were told by Biden that once we all got vaccinated, we'd go back to our normal lives. That was a lie. Now, look, I understand the fact that clearly medical science had no idea what they were doing. They gave us this uh, vaccine. They had no idea how it was going to work or not much of an idea. So Biden was just repeating what he was told. But, you know, in a lot of ways, so was Trump with some of the stuff that he said. I remember when the vaccine came out, we were told 95% of the people that take Pfizer or Moderna will not get COVID. There will be the occasional breakthrough. One out of every 20 people that get vaccinated, well, guess what? That was completely false. I don't think it was a lie. I just think it was negligence, I suppose. They just didn't understand the scientists, what was going to happen with this virus. They just simply didn't know. But now we've certainly uh, learned that people aren't getting really sick or as sick once they're vaccinated. Nobody's getting very sick on these teams, these football teams, the hockey teams, the basketball teams. They're getting tested. They find out that they have COVID. Most of them are asymptomatic. And then they have to sit out a period of time until they're allowed to play again. And somehow they all immediately are able to play at the end of that COVID protocol. It's because nobody's getting sick. Why aren't they taking weeks to get better? Why aren't they on ventilators? Well, the vaccine obviously is not stopping the spread. It's not stopping people from getting it. It's perhaps preventing them from getting really sick and dying, which to me is, look, it's worth something. I mean, let's not deny it. That's why I certainly got vaccinated. I don't regret it, but let's not pretend that we weren't sold something that's not true. And 
Just on December 7th, which is only, you know, a couple of weeks ago, less than a couple of weeks ago, Tony Fauci told us that Omicron appears to cause less severe illness. He said it. And now all of a sudden we're hearing that Omicron is the worst thing to ever happen to this planet, it seems. And it's doubling every couple of days and things are starting to get shut down again. I mean, we're getting back to uh, mid-2020. Biden told us a year ago that he would not shut the country down. That's what he told us. The country is being shut down again, though, and you know we're trying to pretend that it's not. But just look around, and it's not like things ever got back to normal in New York, because they really didn't. I had a trial that was scheduled for August of 2020, a multi-defendant trial in, in Brooklyn State Supreme Court. My guess is that that trial will occur sometime in 2023. And the people that are under indictment in that case, I mean, their lives are completely destroyed until we go to trial and get an acquittal, which we will. But, you know, that's just how it is. You know, the virus in New York, people are taking it as if it's, you know, it's the Black Plague. So you only have to look at South Africa, though, and see, well, that's where Omicron started, right? Only 1.7% of people with COVID are being admitted to the hospital there. 1.7%. When the Delta variant hit South Africa, 19% of all COVID patients were hospitalized there. Now it's 1.7%. The government there said that it was a combination of vaccines and herd immunity. People haven't gotten the uh, virus previously. That, that's what's causing the Omicron virus to be milder. But South Africa only has 44% of the adult population that's received at least one dose of the vaccine. We have like over 70% in America. So if South Africa could get through it with really little to no problem, why are we so hysterical in America? Well, because we've got liberals in charge and we've got the liberal media that it's very important. They scare their shit out of everybody. You know, people are getting the virus, whether they're vaccinated or not, as I said, and they're transmitting it, whether they're vaccinated or not. People are dying, but the people that are dying are, you know, the ones that weren't healthy before they got COVID. The people that are healthy before aren't getting very sick. Young people aren't getting sick at all. As I talked about in our last episode, one out of every hundred kids aged like five to 11 that are getting COVID aren't even seeking medical attention. So the great people that are dying from it are over the age of 65 and, and they're the most vaccinated group. Deaths from young people, like you know, birth to age 29, is less than 1% of the deaths of people age 65 and up from COVID. And obviously the masking, the whole thing is a joke. I mean, we just had the CEOs of American Airlines and Southwest on Wednesday. They uh, testified that uh, and questioned the need for the continuing mask mandates on flights, you know, suggesting that the flight uh, flying maskless is safe. And this is a quote from Southwest Chief Gary Kelly. He said, I think the case is very strong that masks don't add much, if anything, in the, in the air cabin environment. It's very safe and very high quality compared to any other indoor setting. They want to drop the mandates because they know it's bad for business. I mean, it's all about money to them, but at the same time, we all know that the masks aren't really uh, making a difference. And the mask mandates are now in place in New York City, and I can tell you that people don't care. Some people wear them, some people don't. Nobody's told me to put on a mask. Sometimes I wear it. Sometimes I don't. And there's sometimes I wear it. Just I'll be in the subway and, and look at the, the, the animals in the subway. I, I want to wear it. If I could wear a plastic bag over my face without dying, I would probably wear that too. And this is before COVID. 
you know, because you're in the, in the subway and, and, and some savage uh, sneezes on you who's been living in the subway for the last three weeks. You get home and three hours later, you have like typhoid. So you wear it when you feel you don't want to be near people. It's sort of like my way of saying, just get away from me. I'm putting this mask on over my face. I don't want to be anywhere near the air that you breathe because there's a lot of unsavory people in Manhattan and in uh, New York City as a whole. But my point is, is that people are doing what they want. There's not really any enforcement. This is all fiction. Maybe it's time to stop destroying America. I don't know. Let us go on with our lives because, you know, what are we saving here? We're saving, I suppose, the people that are dying are very elderly people who are, have pre-existing conditions. And they're the ones that were changing everything. If you don't want to wear a seatbelt, you don't wear one. If you don't want to smoke cigarettes, you don't smoke them. If you want to uh, drink alcohol, you do. These are all choices that can endanger your life. This is what freedom is about. No one is making you leave your home. No one is making you leave your home. You can stay inside forever. You won't catch the flu. You won't catch COVID. You won't get AIDS. You won't get into accidents. But just leave the rest of us alone. Life is not forever on this planet. We're not going to be here forever. Remember that. We need to live this brief period of time that we have on this planet. Let us live. Let us travel. Let's go to school. Let's learn in classrooms and not remote. If you want to overeat, if you want to eat a lot of sugar, you know, do whatever you want. I mean, that's, that's your choice. You're going you're gonna to pay for it. There's no question in my mind you're going to pay for it down the road. It's also going to tax the healthcare system. But nobody ever whined about that very much, did they? Just leave us alone. The vaccinated are spreading it. The vaccinated are getting it. Do you have a better chance of saving your life by getting a vaccination? You know, I, I suppose you do. I believe it. That's why uh, I got vaccinated twice and then got the booster. But, you know, life is a choice. Leave the rest of us alone. And if you want to talk about the errors that were made by both Trump and Biden, the real errors about COVID, because this thing was coming regardless. Once, once we knew about it, it was already here. You weren't going to close down the borders and stop anything. It's already here. What the issue is, is China. I mean, that was an act of war. Who are we kidding? I mean, are we so stupid that we don't want to blame China for doing this? They poisoned the entire world. We know what they did. We know how, how, how demented and evil these people are. We know what they did. They poisoned us. It was an act of war against America. That was the mistake by not responding. I don't know if you can just nuke China. I mean, if I was president, I probably would have. Probably wouldn't have been the smartest thing because sadly they have nukes as well. But let's be honest, the world could have banded together against China. We don't need the shit that they create in their sweatshop so badly. Or maybe if we do, we need to figure out a way not to. We need to starve them and make them pay for what they did to us and the rest of the world. Instead, we're just ignoring it. We're still throwing money at them. We're still buying all the crap that we, uh, we get from there. So, you know, that's, that's my rant about COVID for the day. And, uh, we're going to transition. When I get back from this break, we're going to talk about something that I, it's something I've never really talked about before. I don't think publicly, and it's how I get clients, you know, how they find me. It's usually a pretty straightforward way. Either they're repeat customers, they're close friends of former clients, they're referrals from clients, or they know about my reputation as an attorney or have seen my results in cases in the news, and then they'll just call me up and make an appointment. 
But two cases that are really interesting how I was hired happened to be two of the most high-profile trials perhaps I've ever had. One of them was John Gotti Jr., as I talked about before. And in 2003, he hired me for his trial, which began in uh, August of 2005. It really was a trial for his life. And Joaquin El Chapo Guzman, who I met at the beginning of 2017, and two years later, I was doing the opening statement in that trial. But we're going to talk about the Gotti case when I get back from this break. And uh, I, I think you'll find this to be a pretty fascinating story. Back with Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. And as I took the break, I was talking about the John Gotti Jr. case and how I got involved in it. So I'm going to start and here's how it is. I first met John Jr. And I'm going to call him John Jr. even though he's not a John Jr. He's John A. Gotti. His father was John J. Gotti. But for ease of reference, I first met John Jr. after his father's conviction. This was about 1991. I think I was 26 at the time. His father had just gotten convicted and John was tasked. And he was the same age as me. John's birthday is a few months before mine. He was tasked with having to find the lawyers to do the appeal. And it's a pretty heavy thing to do. Your father's just gotten convicted. He's going to spend the rest of his life in prison. And you're 26 years old and you've got to be in charge of hiring the legal team for a pretty massive case. I remember meeting John. It was at the uh, law firm that I was working at the time. We were interviewed to do part of the appeal. And in fact, we did. And I wrote part of it as a, as a kid. But I remember John Jr. being a very scary, intense dude. As I said, he was my age, but he just seemed, I don't know, older, you know, more streetwise, I suppose, obviously. I mean, I had no experience with anything. I just started as a lawyer. And we didn't really talk much. You know, he was, you know, I just felt that this was somebody that was unapproachable. And I was obviously the youngest lawyer in a room full of pretty heavyweight lawyers, Al Krieger, Michael Kennedy, uh, Dennis Reardon from San Francisco was there. Michael Tiger uh, from University of Texas was there. It was a pretty, uh, Tony Cardinale from Boston. It was a pretty intimidating group. Bill Kunstler was there who couldn't have been nicer to me. And um, one of these days, I'm going to tell the story about what Michael Kennedy, who I was working for at the time, did to Al Krieger in that room. One of the funniest things I've ever seen that no one ever knows. That's something for the uh, lawyers, the experienced lawyers to hear on a later show. Anyway, the appeal was done. It was argued. And the next time I saw John was in a attorney-client room in a jail in Valhalla, New York. It was after he was arrested in 1998. He was arrested. It was a, a RICO case in, in federal court in Westchester, New York, on charges including extorting the topless bar scores in Manhattan. Dozens of defendants were charged. And at the time, I was working with Jerry Shargell when John was, was indicted. And this was a completely different guy. I was shocked that it was the same person. Completely different. He was happy. He was joking. And he was in jail. I was shocked that this was the same guy that I had seen in 1991. It was only seven years later. And meeting John, we immediately hit it off. And during that time period, I wrote the bail, one of the bail motions for John to try to get him out. I was working for Jerry at the time. And Jerry was his main lawyer. He was in charge. And Jerry, as I've mentioned before, is certainly the most intelligent defense lawyer I've ever met by a mile. They just don't make defense lawyers like this. He knew everything. I mean, he knew every 
area of law. You know, in my best day, I'm, you know, 10%. I have the knowledge of what's in Jerry's brain. That's how, how smart he was. Again, a different generation. And I wrote the bail motion. And uh, during that period, I went out on my own. I still rented space from Jerry in his office for a year, but now I was on my own. And because I was working for myself, I wasn't working for John anymore. So I would still see John though, because he was somebody that I had grown fond of and we had, we had hit it off and John would come to the office once he got out on bail, obviously he was released on bail at some point and he would come to the office many days a week. And sometimes, you know, he would end up gravitating towards my office and I ended up seeing him two, three, four times a week. He'd come to the office with the other defendants. They would meet in the big conference room. And again, I wasn't involved. I was doing my own thing. And it was tough leaving Jerry where he had all these big cases. And all of a sudden I'm on my own and my cases are not as big, except for the times that I'm working with Jerry, where he's hiring me to work for him on the cases. It was a little, a little bit of an adjustment period, I suppose. But I ended up seeing John pretty much every day, it seemed. And as I said, we had much in common. And incredibly, the two areas were mainly American Indians and boxing. And it just so happened that John had an encyclopedic knowledge of both. And I had a a pretty strong knowledge of both as well. I was a a huge fan of George Custer, not the the part that he's deemed to be racist, but just him as a general in the the Civil War and then as as an Indian fighter after the Civil War. And he would come to my office really just to decompress John and just hang out. And as I said, I really did like him. This was not somebody that I was working for. He wasn't a client anymore. So I think it made it easier for me to just to hang out with him. There was no pressure of a case that he was going to be asking me things. Was I doing this? Was I doing that? None of that happened, the type of stuff you get normally from clients. And sometimes he'd ask me for advice and he trusted me. And as I said, he was being represented by Jerry, who was like my father. I mean, Jerry was probably more of a father to me than my own father. But John knew that if he asked me for advice, I would tell him what I really felt and I wouldn't hide any truth from him, regardless of my relationship with Jerry. So John's getting ready for trial and, and Jerry's his lawyer. And as, uh, Jerry's working on the case with his associate at the time, it wasn't me, obviously. And one day John comes in and asks me to look at the plea agreement that was offered by the government. And this is like before the trial, like a couple of weeks before, and he didn't want to take it because he felt that he couldn't trust the government, you know, that they weren't going to continue to indict him after this. He didn't want to take a deal and then keep getting indicted again, because that's what they do to Gotti's. That's how it was back then. And, you know, until recently that they wouldn't stop until they got a conviction. They can put you away for life. They had already put away his father. They put away his uncle soon thereafter. They were going to put away his other uncle for life. And I was surprised, frankly, that he would even consider a plea deal because of it. But John's smart. And more importantly, he was experienced. He'd been through so much with his father and his uncles and all their cases. And he looked at every possible angle. He was not tied to any certain strategy of just having to go to trial. So he showed me the plea agreement, the draft, and asked me if he thought that the deal would end any efforts to indict him in the future. And I looked at it and I didn't feel that it really was going to do that. I mean, it had some helpful language, but of course the government can't have their hands tied. You can't tie them to not indict for any known or unknown crimes at the time they uh, offer a plea agreement. There's just no way. So, you know, I saw that there was helpful language, but in my mind and heart, I knew that 
this was not going to stop the government from going after him again. So I had a choice to make, you know, what am I going to do? I didn't want to hurt Jerry. As I said, I mean, Jerry is probably the most, not probably, is definitely the most important influence in, in my legal career. Jerry gave me everything I have is largely because of Jerry. And that was true back in 1999. And it's really true today. And to his credit, Jerry never said that there was a hundred percent chance that, that this was going to be John's last case that he ever had. There were different districts that could charge him, you know, and as I said, known and unknown crimes, there was, it wasn't like this stopped them from indicting him for anything that they knew about. Simply put, they wanted him, they were going to get him again. But I had to be honest with John and he had become my friend and I couldn't lead him astray. So I told him what I thought. Jerry was in the next office. But I had to tell him the truth. I didn't think that the plea deal would provide the peace that he wanted. It just couldn't. And he listened, understood. He took the deal anyway, literally on the eve of trial, like a day or two before, if I recall. And he was hopeful and he, he knew he wasn't certain the, the, not to be indicted, but he was hopeful, but he was frustrated. You know, sometimes non-lawyers don't really understand how everything works a hundred percent and I guess he wanted a black and white answer and it just didn't exist. And a couple of months later, he left uh, to begin his 77-month sentence. Now, it wasn't a full 77 because he had spent some time in jail before he had gotten out on bail and you only have to do 85% of the time anyway. So he had about five years or so left. But he told me one thing before he left, one thing when he said goodbye to me, and I'll never forget it. It's one of those things that's burned into my memory forever. If I ever get pinched again, I'm hiring a guy like you, a young guy like you. That's what he said. And I listened and I'm like, eh, you know, what is that? It's, am I going to hold him to that? I don't know. You know, it's, but he seemed sincere and John's a sincere guy. He's all sorts of things, but one thing he is, is he's sincere. And it was no disrespect to Jerry, who was like a father figure to John as well, because he represented his father. But I think he felt he needed someone he could relate to better. And, you know, he said that to me. And again, it was, could have been empty words and off to jail. He went four years passed or so. And then I started reading in, in the newspapers that John was being investigated for the shooting of radio host, Curtis Sliwa. Sliwa had disrespected John's father on the radio, on the radio, on air. And the government claimed that John Gotti Jr. had arranged for Sliwa to be kidnapped and shot in the back of a cab in New York City. Actually, I think if the, the allegations were that he wasn't supposed to be shot, but a shooting happened nevertheless. You know, sometimes that can happen when you have a really obnoxious, well, whatever, that's for another day, any anyway. So I receive a phone call out of the blue from Vicki Gotti, and that's John's sister. She was the one that had that show growing up, Gotti. And I had known Victoria for years by then. She had come to me when her then husband, Carmine Agnello, had gotten indicted along with a bunch of other defendants. And had asked me to help put together a team of lawyers to represent them. And this was like in 2000, this was like a year after John had uh, gone away that she asked me for the help. And she trusted me for one reason, because John, her brother, trusted me. And she obviously trusted her brother. And we had become friends, Vicky and I. Been to her house, and, and uh, I liked her. We, we hit it off as well. But now it's 2003, and Vicky's calling me, and she wanted to come see me. And at that meeting... She told me words that would really change my life forever. She said to me, John was being investigated again and uh, was going to be charged, it seemed, for the Sliwa shooting and for other things. And she said to me, 
John told me to ask you something. Do you remember the last thing he said to you when he went off to jail? Now, this is now four years later, and I remembered it because you don't forget something like that. But I couldn't believe that she was telling me that. And I was in my 30s at the time. I was a young lawyer. This isn't like, you know, a baseball player who, when he's in his 30s or he's already old, I was a kid. And I answered, you know, what did he say? Because I didn't want to be too presumptuous. She said, John told you that if he ever gets charged again, that you were his lawyer. Go see him in Raybrook. That was the prison that he was in in upstate New York by Lake Saranac. So I did. I went to go see him. I was shocked, excited. I remembered what he, John had said, and I was just shocked that he meant it. You know, it's one thing to talk about it in theory, but now that you've got the rest of your life in prison hanging over your head, possibly, well, it's a whole other thing. And I was nervous. So I went to go see John and it was like old times, pretty much from the time he was in my office, except now he was in a brown prison jumpsuit. We sat and we talked and John was the kind of guy, when you went to go see him in prison, he never just wanted to talk about the case. So many of these guys, you, you go see him in prison and, you know, all they want to talk about is, did you do this? Did you do that? When am I getting out of here? You know, what's going on with my case? When am I winning my case? Why can't you do this? Why can't you do that? They're just, they're impossible. John's not like that. You go see John in prison, and I shouldn't say it in the, in the present tense because he's never going back. This is the past tense. When you went to go see John in prison, he always wanted to talk about personal stuff first. He was a polite guy. No one had better manners than John. And he wanted to talk about how you're doing and whatnot. He didn't appear desperate or terrified at all when I went to go see him. He just really wanted to shoot the shit for, for a while. I hadn't seen him for a while. And he was a friend of mine. And then we eventually got around to talking about uh, his looming indictment. And they made it very clear. You're my lead lawyer. So hire anyone else you need, but you're my lawyer and we are fighting this case to the end. And again, I was just shocked. This was like 18 years ago, 19 years ago. It was exciting and terrifying. To me, it feels like it was yesterday. And I never asked him why he trusted me so much. He hadn't even seen me argue in court, really. I mean, the first time John really saw me argue in court was when I did his bail motion for him in this case. And that was like a bloodbath. I mean, it was like a fight to the death. And I think then maybe he felt better about his choice. I don't know. I never asked him. I never wanted to ask him. But he trusted me completely. Now, the investigation seemed like it was taking forever. I mean, we're reading about it in the newspapers. And it's going on year after year. And then finally, John was indicted in the end of July, 2004. And it was pretty clear to me at that point why the feds had waited so long to indict him. They knew that once they charged him on a new case, that while he was serving that 77-month racketeering sentence, that he would get concurrent time for both cases. Because he'd be in serving one sentence and detained for the second case. And the feds were so greedy to ensure that they got every drop of blood out of John that they waited until he was about two weeks away from finishing that 77-month sentence before they indicted him on all these new charges, which included the Sliwa shooting, there was a stock fraud charge, and other mafia-related stuff. And it seemed petty to me, but what I didn't really know at that time when it happened was that it was a fatal mistake that the government made. It was the biggest break of my career 
their greediness to make sure that John spent every last day that he could in jail before they indicted him on a case that they were completely ready for, for months, if not years. They had their cooperators in place. Why did they do it? And why was this such a big break for me? Now, John had been in prison, as I said, since he went in on the 77-month RICO sentence. He had been in for just over five years. The statute of limitations for the charges in the case was five years, which means that John had to do something in the prior five years in order for all the charges to stick. Now, they could go back and charge him for things that occurred in 1992, which they did. The Slewa shooting, and that was 13 years earlier at the time, as long as they could establish that there was a conspiracy in place, John was a part of that conspiracy, and that was, in essence, the Gambino crime family, and that some criminal act had occurred in the prior five years since they had indicted him. Now, in order for this statute of limitations defense to work that we were thinking about, that I thought of, we had to prove it was our burden that John had withdrawn from the mafia before the five years began to run. Otherwise, the government's position would be, well, although John hadn't done personally anything while he was in jail, he was still part of a conspiracy and it was uh, his co-defendants, his co-conspirators were doing things and it was reasonably foreseeable that during that period while he was in jail, that his co-conspirators would be committing crimes and he was part of that conspiracy. So at that point, we had to figure out how, or this is what I was thinking, and this all came about when I was in the shower one day, true story. And I thought, well, geez, you know, it's five years. We had to prove, though, that John had withdrawn from the mafia, which, of course, you know, just doesn't happen in, in, in real life, is how everybody assumes. But since John had gone away to prison, he hadn't seen any wise guys in prison. They couldn't visit him. Felons can't come visit people in prison. So John had very few visitors, very close family friends in his family. And while he was visiting those people during that five-year period, all he did was complain about his former life in the mafia. And you're thinking, well, how do you prove this? How do you prove this at a trial? Well, it's not like uh, the visiting rooms in prisons are normally bugged, except in this case they were. This is how crazy the government was to get another Gotti. There was a listening device that was put into the ceiling in the visiting room in John's prison in Raybrook, New York. And every time John had a visitor, they brought him to an area underneath the microphone and they recorded all of his talks. Even when he was meeting with one of his lawyers at the time, who they claimed later was house counsel to the Gambino crime family, they would even tape him. Why? Because they said he was part of the conspiracy. So these tapes were miraculously made and they contained all the complaints by John, how much he hated the mob life how he was done, how he was out, how he was moving on with his life and moving to Oregon or North Carolina when he was released from prison, how much he hated the mafia life. And I'm laughing when I'm thinking to myself about my pronunciation of Oregon. When I said it in my opening statement, I, I re repeated it as Oregon. I mean, the fuck do I know how to, how to say the, the name Oregon? I'm from New Jersey. Who cares about Oregon? And of course, all the Oregon newspapers made fun of my pronunciation. This is the kind of, of uh, desperate attention this case was getting. Anyway, so these tapes were just miraculously made, and on them were some of the following comments, and I'm going to quote, If we are stupid enough to raise our children near this, then we deserve to go to jail. 
He said to a friend, learn from me, learn from me. Let me be the sacrificial lamb. Learn from me. Go on with your life. Learn to feed your family and be a responsible human being. The streets are somebody else's business. I'm five and a half years removed from the street. I don't want to hear about it anymore. I told these guys over and over again, don't come and see me in prison. And then a week later, be sitting in by Ozone Park. Don't come back to see me. I don't want to see you again. Don't bring any messages from anybody. I don't want to know. I don't care. All my father had in this world was me, and I was the only one who could go to see him. And he had me running around for the lawyers and so on and so forth. I got trapped. I'm telling you to be legitimate. Listen to me, kid. I'm telling you to be legitimate. I'm telling you to stay away from these people. I told my mother. I told my sister-in-law. I told everybody else, too. I told them, listen, if I'm fortunate enough to make it out of jail, I'm leaving. You can come with me or not. It's your choice. I'm leaving. There's nothing here, nothing in New York. Smart would have been running away a long time ago. These were things that John said when he didn't know he was being taped by the government. Of course, the government later on said that he had to presume that he was being taped, which is why he was saying all these things, but it was a secret bug and the government really couldn't run away from that. So everything was there. All the evidence was there for the so-called withdrawal defense. It was all there. Not only did the government's decision to charge him so late give me that five-year window while he was in jail where he wasn't doing anything else away from the mafia, it was all that I needed, but I had the proof that he was really out of the mafia in the form of the tapes that the government made themselves. They thought they were collecting evidence against John to use at a trial. They were making the rope that they ultimately hanged themselves with, the evidence that I used to make a withdrawal from the mafia defense. Now, I remember when I thought of this defense, I remember it all too well. I was in the shower. Some of my best thinking is done in the showers, of course, like everybody else. And I walked out and I said, my God, five years? That's the entire time of the statute of limitations. I think this might work. So what was the first thing that I did when I got out of the shower? I called Jerry Shargell up. And this was a different time in the world. So I called him up and I had a question for him. And I explained the situation without mentioning John's name. Not that I didn't trust Jerry, but I just didn't want to bring it up to anybody that I was considering a defense that would require me to admit that the mafia existed, that John was the boss of the Gambino family, and that he had withdrawn from the mafia. This was taboo. You don't say things like this. So I called Jerry up. I asked him, tell me, does this work? I laid it all out for him, and he said, you know, it's weird. But in theory, it works. And that was it for me. If Jerry said it was okay, and I was a kid back then, I said, I'm going to go with it. But could I actually make such a defense in public? It was totally against mafia rules. Remember that. It was completely against what you did back then. Admit that the mafia existed? Claim that John was the boss of the family and then quit? It had never been done before. And it would be hugely controversial. And it was a risk, even dangerous, perhaps. Don't say these kind of things. A lawyer, you know, lawyers get killed. It's not like we're part of any gang. I can't say things like this. Nobody was ever allowed to say anything like this. And it hamstrung so many trials over the years that 
You wanted to admit that the mafia existed, but your guy perhaps wasn't involved. Or perhaps he was involved, but he didn't do these things. So instead, you'd go to trial, and you'd pretend that the mafia didn't exist, and the jury would look at you like, how can I believe a single word that you say when you're lying about whether the mafia exists even? So this was something that I had to bring up to John. In my mind, it would effectively end my career representing defendants in mob cases. I mean, really, because once I did this step, I would become a pariah in the, you know, mafia law bar, if there is such a thing. But in my mind, I mean, look, the fact that I was so young, I think really helped because I just didn't care. I felt I didn't have a choice. I wasn't part of any gang. I, I was just a lawyer. I had to do whatever it took to win. As I used to say to clients over the years, if I tell you that you have to wear a dress in court to win the case, you're going to wear a dress. And that's how it is. And at the same time, who wants to limit their careers to mafia cases anyway? I mean, no offense to the mob or anything or the mob lawyers, I suppose, but I felt that I had talents that were bigger than just being a mafia lawyer. So I had to make a choice at the time. And I had to decide whether I was going to push this thing hard. And uh, I thought about it and said, you know, to myself, I'm not the one who has to rot in jail if we lost this case. It's up to John. Ultimately, it was up to him if he wanted to go forward with it. And I pitched it to him. And to his great credit, he was all for it. He, his position was, look, is it going to work? And I said, you know, I think it might. And you have to remember back then, it was a different climate then than it is now. His uh, father had been convicted and gotten in life. His uncle Gene had gotten convicted and gotten 50 years. His uncle Pete had gotten convicted and gotten a functional life. He died in prison as his father did as well. And his uncle Pete had gotten convicted on nearly the same charges with the same prosecutors in the same courthouse just a year before. Got convicted in two seconds. So we had to try something different. And John's position from the beginning was, hey, man, if you think this is going to work, you just go ahead and do it. It's okay. Now, I can't say that all the people around him felt the same way. A lot of them were pissed at me. And I got a lot of calls that John never knew about from people that were very close to him saying, you cannot do this. It's disrespectful. It's not right. It's disrespecting his father. It's disrespecting this. It's disrespecting that. And I got, you know, the cold shoulder from a lot of people. I didn't care. Frankly, uh, even as I said, I was much younger then. And the truth is, I didn't care then, and I wouldn't care now. I didn't care if I was burning every bridge that I had in my career, and I'd do it again. So that's the story how I got hired by John Gotti Jr. And um, as in our next podcast, we'll probably talk a little more about that trial if you'd like. I think it's an interesting topic. And also the topic, the story about how I got hired by Joaquin Guzman El Chapo is a chilling story. One that no one has ever heard. Very few people have ever heard unless you were sitting in that room in that very small, I don't know, probably a six foot by six foot stone room with a piece of glass in between in the part of the MCC in lower Manhattan where they put people that were under complete isolation. That's where I met Joaquin Guzman. And that's where he eventually decided to hire me, but not before something really, really chilling occurred between the two of us. 
This is Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit podcast. I appreciate you listening. You can find me on Spotify. You can find me on Apple Podcasts. It's on Amazon. You can also go to beyondthelegallimit.com. Listen, let me know any feedback you have. Leave some reviews, all the nice ones, of course. And I will see you next week. Thank you very much. Bye.